Max RPG Podcast. I'm in Max, 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 Max! Pursuing the RPG hobby with reckless abandon. Why, hello, and welcome to Season 25, Episode 2 of Happy Jack's RPG Podcast. My name is Stu. My name is Jim. I'm Stork. And we've got a game convention coming up. Uh, this guy, this guy's like runs. August yeah. 30th and 31st and September 1st and 2nd at the LAX Hilton Hotel, strategicon.net. We'll talk about that after the first email. Right on. Uh, in, this, in this episode, Joe from the Imperium in Landis... Way to try I that. came up with that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tried to try to put like a bow on a hog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, writes in about depth and immersion. Uh, Nicholas asks, am I a necromancer? And uh, Tia Matinen writes in on a sundry of topics. But first, if you'd like to email us, you can email us at happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. That's happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. We have a forum, happyjacksforum.com. And then we're also on all the social meteors. We're on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram and the MeWe, Happy Jacks RPG, all one word. And if you'd like to watch the show live, go to happyjacks.org slash live on Fridays at 7 p.m. Pacific time, and you can watch us and see our face is. Yes. That. <laughs> That's not the biggest selling point. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we just omit that. We edit that. There's a lot better, better looking people on other podcasts. I guess. <laughs> There's better looking yeah. people in this podcast, just out of this room. That's right true. Now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is, a, this is a. This is a. This is a challenged room when it comes to. Yeah. Chiseled good looks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> get the fat old bearded guys. This is what you get, people. You don't get chiseled. You don't get look. You get looks, but you don't you get, get good. Yeah. Well, glares. You get glares. You don't get looks. Depth and immersion <laughs> from Joe in Imperium in, La- in Landis. Jackers. The other day I was watching. The other day I was watching the Nutcracker and the Four Realms. It was fine, and I noticed an odd sensation. The movie world seemed to end at the edges of the screen. I had no feeling that there was anything worth looking at in the rest of the movie's world. Yeah, it's all just off camera people. There's a mic guy, there's a boom guy, there's a bunch of people that are holding camera cables and lights, and yeah, there's nothing to see. Stork, you're breaking the immersion. I'm sorry. Is your is your mic unmuted? Well, it would be off. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, yeah. There we go. That's better. I wanna, we want to hear what you have to say, man. Well, to, to a certain extent. All <laughs> 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 right. Um, <laughs> no, no, put it back on. Um... Contrast with rain, this with Rain of Fire, which I just rewatched today because when I read reread this email today, I'm like, Matthew McConaughey. That, yeah, I'll that it one. Up and buff. Such a good movie. With that axe at the end is like, ah, okay, yeah. And the, it, it's like you see these dragons, like, oh, these things are really fucking dangerous. And then he's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. So you jump out of a helicopter <laughs> and do like, well, he said that with high altitude, low opening, skydiving, dra- dragon hunting units. Yes. It's, if you haven't seen that movie, it's pretty. It's really unique and cool. Really, yes. I have a suspicion it's, it's probably based on somebody's homebrew game because it's so right in the role playing world. What I love world. is the is them reenacting Star Wars for the kids. Right. In the movie. I'm your father. <gasps> it was just great. <laughs> it's yeah, it's so good. It's kind of it's kind of like. Mad Max with dragons. It's got yeah. star power. It's got Matthew McConaughey and it's got Christian Bale. Christian yeah. Bale. Yeah. yeah. Now was it, it was early though. So was Christian Bale big then? Yeah. No, he had just done uh, Equilibrium. Okay. I think Which American was... Psycho had come out. Before. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, contrast with the Reign of Fire or Death's Gambit on and Hallow Night video games, where I get the distinct feeling that there's more out there. Uh, that there are other interesting people, locations, and situations in the world, and we're just looking at one of them. That kind of evocative depth is a major draw of RPGs to me. Do you guys have any thoughts about things we can do, concrete actions we can take as GMs, to create that kind of depth? I'm sure a lot of it has to do with unanswered questions and tantalizing peaks at information. As the GM, can we see the facades on the buildings and the strings on the NPCs? Uh, as the GM, we can see the facades on the buildings and the strings on the NPCs. How can we gauge how effective the illusion is to the players? Thanks for everything you guys do, Joe and the Inland Empire, Nurse Columbus on the forum, P.S. Quaff the potion of your choice. I don't have anything to drink. Uh, 
I'll get something in a second. PPS, why are we still doing this? We're not still doing this, are we? Yes, we are. PSs are very valid here. Things. That, now, the first when I read this, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, was Firefly. Mm. There's a ton of unanswered questions in Firefly, and that does make the setting seem big. Why do people cuss in Chinese? We know there must be something that happened there, and and just there's a lot of things about that society that they don't ever answer. It's just it's just there. The first Star Wars movie had that in spades. That's why is the, the Millennium Falcon exactly all beat up? Say, why yeah. why is the armor all over? Why is this desert planet full of junk collectors? Why is there junk all over the desert? Why 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 why? There were all of these just hints and tantalizing things, but nothing was ever answered, and it just made sure that you just you just filled in this world. There's just this a little, shitload of aliens. Yeah, they're there. And deal, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, but you're absolutely right. That's exactly the same example I was going to come up with was uh, the original Star Wars film, where it basically unapologetically just dumped you into this incredibly alien and weird world without bothering to explain a gosh darn thing. Well, to and then people say things so matter of factly too. It's like somebody walks in and they don't look twice at an alien, right? Or they would just say things like, uh, "Oh yeah, they did the Kessel Run," and you know, just matter of fact, "Oh okay, yeah." Like, and oh, like, yeah, oh, oh, run, yeah. what the oh. hell's that? You know, right. all of this stuff. I know, touch it, you get some Yeah, I got Light speed. I was like, what's 0.5 past light speed? I don't even know what the hell that is. Light speed and a half. There you go. That's super fast. Speed what's, times 1.5. But what's a power converter? And what's uh, you know? And what's right. Tashi Station? Yeah. And all of that stuff. Just just little hits, yeah. little drops yeah. that added. Now here's a, as here's a kid. A, I was just <gasps> here to me. I think is the challenge with this because we. I mean, yes, those unanswered questions and things like that are what sort of create the sort of the genuineness or the legitimateness of the world. All of the characters in that world know all that stuff and probably know all the backstory to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we're presenting a, a setting with a bunch of unanswered questions to players whose characters would know all this stuff, then the GM's going to spend a lot of time explaining all of this stuff mm-hmm. and yeah. its significance. How can we avoid that? Or is there some other direction? Should we not be trying to emulate those kinds of things for role-playing games to get that sort of vastness and completeness of the world? You see what I'm saying? I, oh, yeah. I have lots of thoughts. And I actually... Um, if, you, if you want me to start, I always yeah, need go. to start. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, because he has all these media things, I immediately went towards... I didn't go towards um, uh, all the detail and all these little hints and stuff. That's only part of it to me. Um, have you ever watched a movie without the sound or ever watched it without music? It's boring. No. I it's completely boring. What really works and builds up a movie or a television show is the, is the music and, and the sound effects. Um, all the atmosphere that you hear, uh, the creaking of a cart down a road, the, the rain outside the window as they're talking quietly, the, the sound of the fire crackling. Um, and then sometimes it, you know, it's so evocative, there's, there's just, people are drenched and cold and the mud is splashing up on them and you can almost smell and feel it. I think that dropping all of that atmosphere stuff in there helps to really sell your world to your players. Yep. Like, don't just have it in the golden hour all the time. Don't have it sunny. You know, if it is sunny, make them. You know, it's dusty and it's getting caught in your throat, and you smell. Um, you smell. You know, dust. And uh, when you walk into town, it's everybody's grumpy, and and you can smell grime and 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 the, the crush of humanity. Or it's pouring down rain, and the mud is just cloying. It's sticking to your clothes, and it's just. It's, all of that stuff, the sound of the fire crackling, the sound of the smell of the, of the food as you walk into the inn, will help flesh out your world in a way that you can't just by throwing a bunch of sort of random details at them. I think um, it's a missed opportunity that a lot of GMs just don't do or think about. We, we just tend to get right onto the action. People say, what do I see? It's like, well, wait a minute. You walk in. You can tell that the, floor, the floorboards are very creaky because of light, you know, the, there's hundreds of people that seem to come through here every day. You can smell grease from the, from the kitchen. Uh, the, the tankards all look dented and the tables are all patched and, and all of a sudden you're, you, know, you can hear the smell or the fire is, is halfway down but, and the logs are glowing warm and, it's, and all of a sudden people are transported into this area. Into this into this world in a way that's like ah oh, there's fire roaring and uh, the you, the bartender is uh, is wiping a mug across the bar. Right. It, you throw in a few more details like that, and people are suddenly much more curious about what's well, going engagement on. Engagement of multiple senses. Yes. Uh, uh, and description, but uh, really, I think that there are three major elements when it comes to trying to project immersion. Uh, the first one is exposition. 
and that's the hardest one because, like I said, you don't want to belabor a game with a whole bunch of explanation about what things are. No one so wants you, a 12-page data dump on my world. Exactly. Right? Nobody mm-hmm. wants to know exactly how this culture, the, this dwarven culture works and how their guilds interact with each as other. As much as it's yeah. fascinating to you, the GM, and as much work as you put into it, you really want them to appreciate it. They're not but, and that's the landmine of it, because you as the GM, especially if you're the type of GM that loves world building, one of the things that you want to do is you want to share all this stuff yeah. that you created with people and you're excited about it. Your players may not necessarily be as excited. Cool dwarven stuff but it came up it's with. It's super awesome, right? Uh, so there is a certain level of subtlety that you have to have in your exposition, and you have to um, explain. You have to choose your fights where you go into what level of detail, because it has to be something that moves. Everything that you do as a GM should be something that moves the narrative forward, right? Uh, and, and if uh, to over-explaining something and it doesn't move the narrative forward just because you think it's neat, not necessarily something that's going to entertain your players. Well, uh, at- Eric Odd mentioned that exactly, and a lot of times players will ascribe a lot of importance to the things that you've described in detail because they must be important. The GM spent so much time describing it. Exactly. So you know, exactly. Inadvertently creating red one way. One. That's literally one of the best ways to to create a red herring because people go, well, if the GM is going to spend ten minutes explaining this to me, there's got to be something to it. (laughs) Uh, Which you know, it's not a logical thing to 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 come up with. Uh, But secondly, it's uh, and this one is actually relatively easy to do, and that's interaction. When you have players interact with your NPCs, and your NPCs have some liveliness, some uniqueness. some identity and some and a role to play in the world that they're in uh, that adds a lot to the level of immersion in creating uh, more detailed or fleshed out NPCs that they can interact with because you can use those NPCs to very subtly like I said give you that kind of exposition as part of a conversation that you're having with somebody mm-hmm. it's something totally different to just dump a bunch of information it's radically different to sit down with you know your, your buddy over a tanker of, tankard of beer and he goes oh yeah man I've been having some problems with my wife because she's part of this guild and the way that it works it kind of makes it hard for us to get together blah, blah, blah. Right. so they're now you've given that, that guild information that you wanted about the dwarves out, but you've done it in a way where it's part of another personality, and it's actual active role play that, that gives you that information. And the more uh, that you have your players interact with what you have going on, instead of just simply absorbing it like a movie, the more you're taking the power of what a role-playing game does, uh, which is create a, an interactive story and and you can get a lot of information, a lot of depth out of that. And uh, the lastly, the third thing is ambiance, and that's one of the things that Stork was really dead on balls about, adding some music, uh, really sort of like giving a people, people a feel of what the smells, the sounds, the, the tastes, and the feels of the place that they're in is like. And when you create those type of situations, people automatically sort of like move into the right mood uh, and sort of understand where they are, and those type of things really inform what they're going to be doing as a player. It's really easy to forget to talk about we always just do sight. Sometimes you do sound, but yeah. it's really easy to forget about smell and taste. And smell is a really big one. When I did the Fey Realm one, I talked about how because it's supposed to be in autumn, it's the autumn Fey. Uh, when they when they get into the Fey Realm, they smell that smell of sort of wood smoke. You know, like when they used to burn um, uh, fields and stuff. And it's a sort of pervading smell of like loamy forest and rotting leaves and wood smoke. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that cat's a powerful spell. That's all I basically said. And it, and it kind of informs the whole area right there. You're setting the scene. And that's what I wanted to continue on was, uh, yes, I think, yes, the GM needs to drive things forward. But I think it's also important to set the scene and, and allow that scene to be fleshed out and breathe a bit. You can't just di- dive right in. I think it's important to let people know kind of where they stay, like perhaps if they're at an inn. Instead of them asking what happens, you say, you hear snippets of conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and set the scene for them and give them, give, the, you know, give that opening act or give the opening scene some moments to breathe and, and a chance to, um, to establish for the players you know, what, what's going on instead of just throwing them willy-nilly into it. They may do that anyway on their own. Yeah. Just dive right over and start hit, hitting people. But I think it's a missed opportunity for the GM to help um, flesh out your own world that you spent so much time creating. Yeah. I mean, and uh, so, you know, you're what, what you're doing is you're creating a, a, a separate, more dimensions to, to the place when you add more descriptive 
uh, elements, especially when it's just not just a visual sense. When uh, there are a lot of times where I, I have a sound effects board that I have on my laptop that has like a crackling fire mm-hmm. or the sound of uh, of rain on, on the outside, and you can just just by playing something like that, that's just sort of like a little sound effect in the background, and and sort of explaining to people what's going on and how everything looks. It, it, it sort of turns into a campfire story. It totally, does. and I think it's really it's really important to sort of just even touch on those a bit. Like you know, when you're sitting around the fire and you and you smell that wood smoke, or you hear the crackling, and if you have a crackling fire sound, it, it everybody, it's a primal thing. We're all we're back into camp. We're mm-hmm. back in uh, your grandfather's living room. You're Absolutely. back. Uh, you're back at Christmas time when you had a roaring fire. It's a simple little thing, but it can go a really long way to establishing a mood. Well, a lot of times I think that people sort of lose sight that uh, the location where they're, where players are are where player characters are in can be as much of a of, of a characterization mm-hmm. as anything else, and 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 what you're doing every time you sort of like lay out a uh, a really good feel for for a location, maybe a city or a town, wherever you're at, and people start really understanding, start getting an emotional connection to what that place is. When you're building that emotional connection, that's when you're actually building immersion, because immersion comes from you uh, investing. Uh, Yourself into the storyline and become and and becoming emotionally susceptible to whatever is going on there. So when you when you make somebody feel something, that's when you hook them. That's when you have them. There's another thought that occurs to me as well. This is, a, this is another sidetrack here, which is um, somehow some and sometimes perhaps invert the tropes that we're all used to, right? Perhaps the elves aren't the nice people we think they are. Maybe they're slavers. Or mm-hmm. maybe they are haughty gods that uh, that you know like to come in and, and you know play games with the humans and such. Or or maybe they are are, are completely feral savages. You know, oh, you got to watch out for elves. It's it's fun now because now all of a sudden you've taken your world and made it unique and different, and that people are going to start looking at different at details differently. They're not just going to immediately walk in and say, "Oh, the elves are good and play music." Uh, are are they? Do they? Mm-hmm. How do you know this? <laughs> it's it is. Um, it's a simple little trick, you know. Sometimes to to just have the 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 tropes that people think are are there to are gone. I mean, maybe elves aren't even there anymore, or maybe there's uh, people that they think are elves, but they're actually just uh, maybe they're dwarves, or maybe maybe they're you know humans that pretend to be. It's it's funny and fun to to mess around with that world that way because it's not it, the people aren't going to know what to expect at any point now once you've once you've changed your world up. Right, and you can still play that within the bounds of D anD. d There's no reason that the elves can't be still elvish, but have a whole different take. They don't have to be the good Tolkien elves that we're always used to. And now, all of a sudden, your players are much more invested in the world because they don't know what the hell is going to go on. Uh, Eric from uh, uh, New Jersey, I think. Or Ed, no, Ed. Ed from M- MN. Ed from Minnesota. Minnesota. Right. Uh, he, he said he uh, elves were slavers in his world. There and it totally made the players think about it. Nobody liked it, but I made elves pricks and they believed it. But I made sure to mention perfume, and players now think people who like perfume are slavers. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there's one of there's uh, a very famous Shadowrun module where there's this stuff called amber gel, which is basically this thing that bug spirits are using to try to take people over. And the GM that ran that for us the first time did it. With, he totally shut down the lights. He was very creepy about that entire adventure. Uh, it was like insect based, so we were already kind of freaked out. And our emotional connection to Amber Gel now is so deep that it's become a trope within our own group of friends for something that's just scary as shit, and you need to run away. <laughs> um, uh, so you know, when you do it right, you're creating this 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 deep emotional response. Uh, when you really set up, set the the scene right, people really feel. The emotion that you're trying to give off, whether it's fear, whether it's exhilaration, whatever it is that scene demands. Right. Some of the best video games and movies. That's that's what they achieve. Um, you get you get caught up in the atmosphere and you get caught up in the world. Uh, I can I can think of like uh, Dragon Age was so great with the stories and the worlds and the world building and the architecture and stuff that. Like, I think that's sort of what he's alluding to here with the summit of the Gambit and Hollow Knight. You get so caught up in the visuals and so caught up in that world that that it seems real to you. There's, as a side note, there's kind of this weird thing that happens to me whenever I played a long MMO or a, or a world for again, uh, especially MMOs. I went back to EverQuest uh, maybe a year or two ago, and I spent so much time in there and going around these places that I... It's a digital world. They're, they're not real places, and yet I had, like, 
like I felt like Patton walking through, like there was a great battle here once. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh wow, I remember dying over there, and oh wow, I used to I used to hang out with oh, and am I having these like emotional journeys in this completely totally digital world that isn't actually real? But right. you know, oh, I remember that. I remember falling out of that tree when I was like level two. Oh, wait, wait for the oasis. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> uh, Master Vidar said, uh, "Elves are happy woods folk who play music and dance." They also enjoy enjoy a nice roast human once. Right? In a while. <laughs> See, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. It. I remember when it's I was, the only meat they eat. I remember when I was watching Labyrinth, you know, and she's like, "Oh, a fairy!" He's like, "What do you want with fairies?" And she goes, "Oh, a baby. What did you expect? It's a fairy. It's a fairy. <laughs> Freaking Labyrinth! I just watched that recently. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're 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 trying to evoke an emotional response. That's the point, and when, and the more elements that you put in there to to elicit that emotional response, the the better off you are. You know, use more senses, use more description, have more interesting NPCs come up and give people information instead of just uh, just rattling it off. Um, create some ambiance, use some mood music, use your lighting. Um, there I'll, are a lot of tricks that you can do. Also, with your NPCs. Show them living their lives, and show them that their lives are not just sitting around with an exclamation point or a question mark over their head. That's exactly. a really good point. You know what I mean? And like when you like you you talk to some guy in a bar, and he gave you some bit of information, and then you see him like having an argument with his wife, and the you know that it is at his place of business or something, or just make them more than just. Just, when when just, you walk up to an NPC, he's haggling over the price of something with with a vendor. You know. Uh, at, at, you're, you're creating vivid situations where you can relate to them, uh, so that there's something that you can immediately grab onto. Says, "Oh, I, I know what that's like." I know. Or wonder like. about. Or wonder. Why about, is it yeah. that guy seems so wealthy? Why is he haggling so much over that? Like, I think wealthy people get wealthy. Right. <laughs> and and if, you, if you have trouble with this at first, you can do what actors do, which is you sort of base stuff on things you know. Mm. Um, I re- I remember. I, I, I was it was it. Kimmy, or you? We were, we brought this up a couple of times. Where she, I think it was Kimmy when she was describing a high school, and at some point she realized she had to stop and draw the high school out because everybody was picturing their high school. Right, right. And she may even have described her high school. It's like, oh, you walk into high school, and so she described what her high school looked like. And I think that that's, it's, it, it can be a good tool for everybody. You know, you know describing how somebody sounds, or, or you imitate your uncle, or describing the interior of somebody's house. You can base it on your childhood home because you right. know it really well. And it's okay if people are envisioning things differently as yeah. long as they're not coming into conflict. You know what I mean? And then a lot of times they don't. I mean, you can have a situation where you're describing... I, I, I mean, I, I, I talked about this in the old GM briefing once. Because I very rarely play, almost always GM. And Kimmy was describing... Or it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a D&D game she ran. Were you in that? I don't know. There was like, there was like three or four people who played in that. It was like a one shot. No, she was describing. It was the first. I think it was the first time she jammed, and she's describing how we're we're entering into the city, and um, you know, it's like muddy and it's like you know, typical medieval city. There's you know the trough of crap down the middle of the the street. Then she says it's like all festooned with with. Uh, uh, like banners and and there's uh, uh, tapestries up and it's obviously there's they're getting ready for some sort of a um, some sort of festival or something right so like immediately in my mind as she's describing the situation suddenly the streets got wider mm-hmm. and they got cleaner mm-hmm. <laughs> and she didn't say any of those no. things it's just as she added more detail to it it changed in my head what I envisioned I was seeing and I think that. Uh, have, I mean, I don't think you should shy away. Even even if it does create red herrings, I don't think you should shy shy away from. Not necessarily a complete and and like painstakingly horrible description of something, but give enough detail so that everyone kind of starts to get on the same page. You know what I mean? And they will just naturally. I think. Our brains—that's the way. I think that's the way they work. The more information you give them, other things change to accommodate the new the new things that the GM. And, and if you get in the habit of doing that, sort of having every time they step into a building or setting a scene, they're going to stop looking for red herrings because now they know that that's part of your GMing style, which is to sort of set set the you know set the scene at first with a lot of narrative and a lot of description. Right. And they'll stop maybe at first when there's like. Okay, well, this all must be important. Well, after the fifth or sixth building you walk into, and it's had this thing, you're going to be, oh, it's all just part of the style. Okay, got it. I'm going to stop looking for red herrings now. Right. Now, they also mentioned sn- uh, uh, scratch and sniff things. For <laughs> for, and I, I just did a search on Amazon, and there's a, 
there's a wine tasting scratch and sniff book. Now, I'm assuming that's like here's what here's what jammy smells like, or here's what beets smell like, or something like that. But I also found there's a dope one too. There's a where was it? The scratch and sniff book of weed. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, one of my my favorite author, Eli Moda, said, spends a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time, but he usually like if somebody goes into a restaurant or sits down to eat, he'll he'll describe what they're eating. Instead of just, it's not just Conan biting a, a haunch of meat. It's, it's usually like some sort of game hand and cream sauce with a with a light ale, and, and suddenly you're like, I'm kind of hungry. That's what it's really good. One of the things. Well, when when Tabby works on stuff, sometimes he'll actually detail out the type of food that they have in an area. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if there are two crucial things about culture, language and food, if you get both of those down, you can really communicate a culture. Food is a very important thing, because a lot of times when you're describing the food, and let's say you're doing like this, you're moving across a, 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 a wide swath of land. You're moving like from a tropics up to, to a, a more cold area. You start off with a certain type of food in a certain type of way, and then when you get up to the north, none of the spices are there. Right. right. It's basically meats seasoned with the fats of other meats with mm-hmm. a lot of salt. So, you know, it, you can really sort of like put a whole new dimension thing when you start just describing the different foods. You also get time of year, and you also get socioeconomic stuff as well. Exactly. It's like if you walk into an inn that's serving game hen with cream sauce, it's a much more upscale than the one that's serving um, root soup. Yeah. A thin root soup with, right. uh, with watered-down ale. Mm-hmm. But even those descriptions right there really almost set a scene. You're all, are you already like, yeah, it's like carrots and things. One of the things that I picked up from Fate, and one of the things that I use a lot when I'm running a game, is that when I create a scene, as I'm, as I'm thinking of the scene, I'll always write down in my notebook, and I don't use it for anything other than for myself, an aspect that describes that scene. So what I'm asking myself when I'm doing that to condense what this, theme, this scene is supposed to do in a sentence. And then I use that sort of as the kernel of everything that I build around in that. That's scene. a great acting exercise too. Did yeah, you, from Summerstock, did you pick that <laughs> Meisner technique going on? No, that's uh, that. That was me just inferring that uh, straight up from the the Fate Fractal, uh, and and. I find that writing down just a straight thematic idea of what you want to see in an NPC, anything to be, mm-hmm. really, really helps you focus in on what you're trying to do thematically, and keeps you on track. And then, on t- and it's easier about to motivations. build motivations, <laughs> which is the only real way to run a fluid game yeah. is to to just create NPCs and situations that have motivations and react with those instead of a straight up plot. Right. There's also llama llama yum yum. <laughs> A scratch and sniff book. Just to let you know, I fucking hate llamas. I, I loathe them. I, I don't know if there's next a time I see one, I'm going to punch it straight in the face. Just make sure it's a llama and not a and not a alpaca, alpaca. Uh, or or a guanaco. Those guys are assholes. What are those? Too. They're another, another form of llama. Okay. <laughs> Long-necked. Yeah, long- freakish. It's mammal. a Chilean version of that okay. creature. Being from South America, I've been spit on by a few llamas. I hate those guys. Fuckers. <laughs> <Animals laughs> They're dicks, man. Animals are worse. They're all over the place now, and my wife loves pointing out, look, a llama. I'm like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole llama pet- song. They have llamas at petting zoo at fair, too. Or are those alpacas? They're alpacas. I can never tell the difference. Well, alpacas are smaller, right? Alpacas are smaller and fluffier. Okay. The llama is the biggest one, and they're the, the pack animal. They're all dromedaries. They also had baby goats at fair last year. They were so cute. Baby goats are so cute. Little bouncy baby goats. But but back anyway. on to role playing. All right, all right. Well, thank you very much there for the email, Joe from the Inland Empire. Hey, what's going on with the con coming up? You know what's going on with the con coming up? A lot of role playing games. Uh, to the point where I think I've broken a record in the number of role playing games yeah, that I actually have in my department. Yeah. Uh, and we're we're nearing like 120 games, uh, and I still have. A few to input from our special guests. So that's awesome. Um, that's up from how long have you been doing this? Oh man, like 2012, I think is when I started something like that. Uh, no, 2010. So it's been nine years. Nine, ten years. Nineteen and, uh, years that I've been doing this. And uh, when I started, I had around maybe 85 events mm-hmm. to 90 events. I'm at like our 120 now, uh, and that's not even counting the crap load of stuff that goes on in, on games on demand now. Right. 
and the fact that Adventurers League and Pathfinder Society have exploded in popularity over the last couple of years. Have they really? Yeah. Um, well, the, with the addition of uh, with the new edition of Dungeon Dragon Fifth Edition, actually really reinvigorated Adventurers League. Um, and oh, and, they, and you've got Pathfinder, and we two. have Pathfinder too. And right. but also the Pathfinder, those guys really, really keep up on their product because they they had Starfinder come out not too long. That was ago, a couple years ago. Yeah. A couple of years ago. Now they have uh, Pathfinder Second Edition, which actually has some really, really neat elements to it. They mm-hmm. they really did a, some some fun stuff with that. We actually had somebody from PFS at Orcon this year, and I sat down with her for about a half hour uh, when she talked about that. And. Uh, uh, and now, also, since we've had a change of leadership in our LARPs department, we have like 21 LARPs. No kidding. Wow. John Wick's running three. What's Him's he running? Seventh C? He's wow. running the, his, his professional wrestling LARP uh, <laughs> that he's been running around. Awesome. I am really curious about this because right? it sounds pretty cool. Uh, there was talk about him trying doing a vampire one. I don't want to see, ner- ner- see nerds in tights, though. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh. Come on, it's like it's I a don't Jack Black's movie. What was that? The, the Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre. Nacho. Yeah. Um, so you know, if, if whether standing up or sitting down, if you want to pretend to be somebody else and make stuff up, uh, it's, uh, it's it's a great convention to go to, especially uh, especially now. Um, John Wick's Imagine is. It's uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, he's totally fun, and uh, we, we have also his partner Ben Warner. Who's run, who's testing a new uh, Stone Age game uh, where, you, where you play basically uh, cavemen in the Stone what Age? What a great idea! How come uh, that's never been done before. Is it before a language evolved? I'm not exactly sure. He's play testing this bad boy, oh, and you might just be a table of people going, "Ooh, ooh God, God. right!" Yeah. Hitting like, each other over the head with foam bats. Quest for fire. Yeah, yeah quest for fire. Yeah, uh, and uh, so Ben Warner, and we have somebody else that's. Uh, uh, well, we have several RPG special guests. There's a lot of stuff going on, and uh, if you're in the Southern California area at the end of the month, uh, come over and check us out, and we also have a whole bunch of actual plays that you guys are doing on. And I hear that you're doing a Cthulhu 7th that's actually involved with yes. the Cthulhu game. That yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it ties into the... I'm not exactly sure how yet. It may be... I may, I may ask any surviving players from it to write down their Sort of like they're a journal entry or something oh, that you could you find at some point. Uh, Kimmy's running Decima. Uh, there's a uh, uh, Kadev is running uh, Tales from the Loop. Um, you know, a bunch of neat stuff. Uh, Dave Kaze is also running. I, th- I think. Uh, is, no, it's not it's a town. The new town one, right? The, the not, not attack, I don't think he's running a town called Malice for for the AP. I think he's actually doing Bedlam Hall. Bedlam Hall. That's yeah. the one I was. Oh, okay. um, Victorian one. Uh, so you know, lots lots of things to see and hear. Lots of fun to be had, uh, and and if and there's not a cheaper time to be had. I mean, you know, a, a day passes like what thirty bucks, right? Something it's like still, that. yeah. And and it's unlimited events, and it's twenty four hours. You still have to register for games, although there is a games on demand. There is for games those, on demand for those that are late or don't want to commit. You you can. Not only that, but you can go in there and run something. That's true. Uh, whatever you want to do, uh, and and uh, Tomes runs that like clockwork. And if you have kids, there's also a kids games on demand. And we have several uh, games going off in the family area now. We've been uh, trying to get more GMs to run kids games, so we have. Oh, you have like, a whole day in games on demand, isn't like sun- Sunday? Sunday, Sunday uh, afternoon uh, to early evening is entirely just for kids. Uh, and we also have on Saturday and Sunday from nine to eight a kids area upstairs on the second floor, where we have all kinds of games and their own, own their own kids uh, games library, where you can just go in and borrow a game and play it with your kids. Uh, I, I think games on demand is such a great idea. Can you briefly touch about like how that works so that people like because sometimes people might be yeah, shy sure. about how they, how to do something well, like that. Games on demand uh, it, is is a model that was recently made kind of popular in a lot of the major game conventions, and the the, the, the here's the way. It works. Uh, we have an organizer, and what he does is he collects a bunch of GMs. These GMs uh, have a whole bunch of games that they're willing to run. Uh, they're usually relatively small format, around two to three hour games, uh, and they have a list of two to three games that they're willing to run. And what everybody does is they walk up. All the GMs have this is what we have to offer. They have a brief little. These are the games. Trying to sell them, and then everybody goes. I want to play this game, and the largest groups that want to play those games go to a table immediately and just start playing the game. So uh, it's really just sort of like a walk-up, get-random game. 
uh, it's it's RPG pickup game. P- pickup group, yeah. Exactly. So and, and then that game goes off, and if you like what you what happened, you want to play another game. There's usually other games kicking off right then and there. No, nothing runs on a set schedule. The the whole thing is open from a certain time to a certain time. Uh, you know, depending on what's going on, you can get three or four games in. You can and get one game in. And that's where they was going. That which is really key. Like if you if you have a full weekend, but you have uh, six seven hours on Saturday, come on down. Yeah. Get in a a. a, a Games on demand game, and you know, get your game on. And one of the reasons I put it in there is because you know th- we had a situation where there were some failed games going on. There was some you know s- people not being able to get into the games that they wanted to get into, and uh, I just wanted to give people an option for something to do if for something if something happens where so they can't cool. get into what they need to get into, they can still so- find something fun to do. And it's organized. It's not just a big big cacophony down there where everybody's yeah, fighting. Yeah, it's not like open open gaming <laughs> where people are just like my table. Right. Take a hatchet to the face. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that and and uh, so and we also have Artemis Bridge Simulator. If you like Star Trek, we have uh, because it's not just role playing games. We have board games, miniatures games, video games, uh, seminars. Our own Jason Mills is actually going to be giving a sem- seminar. Oh, is he good? Uh, awesome! Uh, right before your uh, your podcast on Saturday. Right um, now, our, our our live show is going to be in the same room we're gaming in, right? Yep. Yes. You're gonna, small you're gonna more fill people. the small room. Pack of, the room. Rather yeah. have a packed small room than, a, uh, than an empty big room. And one of the things I also <laughs> want to point out that's uh, smellier too, because I know that there are a lot of people that listen to the podcast that can't attend this convention. Uh, but uh, that's one of the reasons why I encouraged you guys to do the APs at the con, uh, so there are at least some games that you can actually watch and then listen to people talk about at the at, at, at the show on Saturday. Right. So there's a point of reference. Uh, so. Anybody can enjoy what's going on, with especially with the Happy Jacks group at this convention. So, and that's pretty much all I want to say. I don't want to eat up too much time. All right, excellent. Uh, next email: Am I a necromancer from Nicholas? Who would like to read Nicholas's email? Uh, I'll go ahead and read it from humble Sweden. He's a humble Sweden. Swede from Niklas. <coughs> Am I a necromancer? No. I summon thee, Jackers, elder dice god from the uh, from across the pond. It is I, Niklas, the humble Swede, offering my email allegiance. Uh, my question is whether a profession slash class is a lifestyle or simply a set of skills. I guess it's a game specific question, but generally I consider the meta gaming if a char- meta gaming if a character thinks of another as a rogue, the paladin, or even the necromancer. Optional pause before story time. Okay, so story time. Uh, I played a low-level mage who strongly believed the dead should stay dead. Good plan. Uh, through through his efforts, he came uh, to acquire a grimoire, grimoire of necromancy. Its owner had recently passed away. I wonder how. And it <laughs> would be a shame to waste such a fine, uh, su- such a fire, fi- fine. Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He skimmed through it to see if it can be weaponized. Sure thing. A powerful and diverse set of skills, ranging from very useful to utter utter heresy. They come as a bundle, rules as written. He he accepts the devil's bargain and learns uh, that a surprise mechanic has been added. Mild corpse rot. Oh, oh, so, okay. He's, He's got mild corpse rot. Yeah. Uh, GM announces you are a necromancer now. Woo! I get that when it's humid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's eczema, man. Uh, stay away from uh, stay away from witch hunters, or you shall be soon set, uh, be set ablaze. True, mutation is no joke in the empire, but the, these retorts kept coming up. You're a necromancer, Nicholas. I'd argue that manners make. I'd argue that manners maketh the man. No necromancy uh, had has. Uh, no necromancy has been used, no dead raised, yet I caught, I, I caught on. Uh, players were less trusting, NPCs less friendly, even even more so when the useful spells uh, started to surface. Those were invisible, invisible ways of causing, uh, causing fear and damage. Not that edgy. A small thing to mail about, you might think. Well, here's the thing. We finally tracked down the next necromancer on our list. He had an undead bear charging us, and that's when the necro- that that's where the necro- necromancy finally would become really useful. I, quick, I, I would quickly steal the control of the corpses before be- banishing them to oblivion, and I storked it. Uh, yep. Here's where the group dynamic exploded from all the built-up pressure. A couple of underwhelming rolls, and I ex experienced my first ever PC death. PC death wasn't a, th- a thing until this day. 
the first one is always special. Yeah. Sometimes I think of it as a, uh, as a butterfly effect. The GM leading players on with meta knowledge. The meta knowledge thing is it kind of goes into the whole tropes and um, um, stereotypes that I was talking about earlier. But I, and I can certainly remember it's like you know once you figure out what somebody is, there's all of a sudden all these things you assign to them. Oh, he's a necromancer. He must be bad. Right. It's, it's funny. My daughter and I. Or he's a rogue. I want to make sure that my pouch is pouch is always that. Right. And then people fall into the trope. I'm a rogue. I'm going to steal everybody's stuff. It's like why do you always have to do that? My daughter and I were talking the other day about why don't you make a necromancer that's like just is is nice and wants to help people and reanimate their their dead loved ones or or make little teddy bear golems because you know they, to entertain children you you had a, a nice necromancer in the Elda, the first sure. Elda me game i know mandite he was he was awesome but everybody thinks he's just know, a little experimental he's just you know a little curious you are dealing with you know dead things after sure. all but well, so are clerics too if you think about it yeah. really what so you're dealing with mind. here is prejudices yeah yes you're right or preconceived notions or preconceived clerics notions. bring people back from the dead all the time too so. yeah and i mean Hey, the spell type is necromancy. Look it up. Yep. <laughs> very few, pe- very few people today, unless they have very specific occupations, consider their occupation to be their identity. It's a dangerous thing. People still do that. They define them as their doctors, yeah. lawyers, college professors. But a lot of people don't. But the thing is, I think that's one of the things that sort of delineates a profession from a job, right? Possibly. Yeah. When you're when you're part of a profession, you're a mason. You're an actor. You're uh, you know, you're, you're a sound designer. It's one of the things that's that's sort of like a core part of who you are because you put so much time and attention into it, and right. that's very much like a character class. Because you know that the, uh, when when ultimately put it, when you're a fighter, you've basically been training for a very long time to be big buff and swing a sword. So that's got to be part of your identity and who mm-hmm. you are, right? Uh, now, we're, but I think that more what he's going into is I just picked up this book and read it, and I was foisted, and this this prejudice against me was foisted upon me without me really understanding what the consequences of me picking that picking up that book was. Right, I can understand where you're coming from uh, with that because if I didn't understand what the consequences of doing something as a player and and I had made that decision for my character and then I had to deal with those consequences afterwards, I might be a little bit miffed. Personally, I wouldn't because I like to roll with that kind of stuff. But I can understand how somebody would be upset. You could at least foreshadow that, though. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, the, uh, I'm I'm rereading uh, Deadbeats right now, the Dresden Files book, mm-hmm. and there's like three groups of necromancers who come into town because it's they they're trying to find Kemmler's word, Kemmler's and word, yeah. that whole thing. Yeah. And and Dresden describes when he meets each of these these necromancers that there's something about them that's different. And, but he also is using magical senses to right. sort of to sort of and and he can. Because Bob did the little experiment. Spoilers, if you haven't read this book, it's 10 years old. Um, Bob did that thing where he's, he, he said, I want to know more about Kemmler and, and all that. And all of a sudden, Bob changes yeah. and becomes like scary evil Bob. Evil Bob, yeah. And starts casting spells and shit. And like, this is necromantic magic. This is the magic of death. Come, young wizard. That whole thing yeah. it, it freaks you the shit out. But after that, it, once he's sort of had that taste of it, he's now he can now he suddenly recognizes it, and he can. And maybe there's, but I, I, I agree. The, the, you should have given the guy some kind of warning, whether it was in up. story or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that that would be the only thing I have a, about it really. But when you play a half orc, you have to be willing to deal with the consequences of playing a half orc, uh, especially if you know that the world already sort of has prejudice against orcs and you're going to have and that's a problem but to me that's part of the fun of role playing a half orc is you're dealing with the negative side of uh, the, the social aspect of being a half orc right and you know in the examples we had below what if what if elves are cannibalistic to a certain extent but yours isn't you wants he wants to go out and explore the world well, I'm vegan. <laughs> well i'm vegan but nobody understands it and you're constantly being harassed because you're a baby eater <laughs> or even even your, even your half elf doesn't necessarily have to be a product of love right right it, it, oh, oh yeah yeah border wars happen and things can awful things happen to people all Horrible the time and so um there's there's ways to subvert these tropes, I think. You're right, because basically what happens is this whole party, pretty much once they hear what your class is, they assign a whole bunch of, of um, aspects to you. Right. For lack of a better word. Yeah. So, But the, 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 that goes into all the huge, the big argument about D&D and, and, and basically the fact that uh, 
by its very nature, it creates uh, it creates identity separation between all these characters and automatically and tropes that you sort of are expected to follow through yeah. on that character class. Yeah, and uh, to a certain extent, as Stu was sort of talking about, which is your identity is really wrapped up in what it is you do. Um, and I think it's fair to say that people that study a long time to do something, there it's and in, I, I see it in, even in modern day that people have a, their identity is wrapped up in what they do. They are defined by how good they are at doing something. Whether you're a musician, a soldier, uh, an athlete, it's really it can be a real big part of your identity or all of it. I know hear all stories about dancers who hurt themselves and suddenly they don't know what to do with themselves anymore because their identity was so linked to dancing. Yeah, uh, but. But maybe that's a different conversation. It's a different conversation. What, what, uh, the main thing about this situation is I, I, I see the value of surprising your players with un- unforeseen consequences. That can be interesting and that can be entertaining. Yes. Uh, but I think that I, I also solidly believe that RPG is a conversation. And I think that it, that when you're going to do something like that very arbitrarily to their character, that is a little side conversation we have. Hey, I have this great idea about this necromancy book. How about we do this? Uh, I, as a player myself, I'd be excited to pr- to pursue that as a possibility. Because uh, this 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 example sort of as it can be interpreted as taking away some player agency. There, yeah, it's like you've completely rewritten your character. The character specific. It, did the did the player have a choice? Did he have buy-in? Right. It's a little it's a little hard to tell, but yeah, it is kind of a dick move to just. There should be at least so. It's like, well, you know, even having the knowledge might change you. Yeah, yeah. And just giving yeah. just that much and go. No, I'm gonna read it anyway. Okay, you warned or, him, or or, really, or or basically go. Be wary of the form of magics that you delve into, for they will color you, your he, soul. He does say, you know? they "Come as a bundle." Rules as written. He accepts yeah. the devil's bargain and learns to a uh, surprise mechanic has been added. Yeah, uh, you know, but. I, once again, pl- first player death. <laughs> Your first yeah. cut is the deepest. It's, yeah. it's uh, but I, I think that all in all, at the end of this situation. Oh, wait, I wait, wait! Did he literally accept a devil's bargain? Because then he brought it on himself. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sort of, sort of reading between the lines here, and the fact that he he accepted a devil's bargain as he knew he was doing something bad, but he didn't know exactly what the consequences were going to be of doing right. something. So the thing is, he yeah, he knew, I think he knew he was stepping in some mud here. But Might have just also been munchkinning a little bit. He's like, been. yeah, well, you know what? I'm not going to use this stuff because it's going to have bad consequences socially. But I'm just going to learn it all. So he, if I ever did need to know it. Yeah. He says right here, I skimmed through to see if it could be weaponized. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing, a powerful and diverse set of skills. I'm just going to say this whole thing. Lesson learned. Yep. Right. <laughs> and be careful email, what you ask for. You just might get it. An email on a bunch of stuff from Tia Matinen. Please read this email in mocking mimicry of the host past or present of the reader's choice. I'll read it as myself. Ooh. Greetings, comrade Stulin and his merry balalaika orchestra. It is I, Tiamatatanin. See, it's Tiamat. Tiamatanin. Tiamatanin, yeah. From the mighty fjords of Norway. If that's too annoying, you can just admit defeat and refer to me as Matt. Tiamatanin. You know me as one of the Discord people that keep trying to seduce people into picking up miniature war games. I have some thoughts and questions I'd like to share if uh, it's taking too long. Just yank out the points that you don't care for. One, blood for the blood god. Skulls for the skull throne. (laughs) I'm currently... That might actually be later on. I'm currently living with a reduced amount... uh, A reduced connection to Wi-Fi, so I've been listening to some of your older episodes. Back in season four or five... Oh my god. Four or five... Were we... That's like almost ten years ago. Uh, I kind of miss Bruce and Casey and Tyler at times. Stu made a comment to the effect: "I don't know if I could run a Call of Cthulhu game. I don't think I could keep up the, sp- the keep the suspense up." And I can't, considering that there's now a Cthulhu game in the pipes. I want to ask: What's changed? Have you grown as a GM? If so, how has the pool of players gotten big enough that you could handpick players for it? Did the elder go- the elder ones plant a seed in your mind which demands you share your madness? You want to just answer um, that? The seventh edition came along and I liked it. Um, and I'm just trying it see, to see. Don't try my hand at it. Well, we'll you, see. You were snarky, but I mean, are you able to keep the suspense up? Uh, I'm not so far. I don't know. I mean, I've, kinda. I've felt, I've felt suspenseful in that game. And that's because there's bugs. 
everyone freaks out when it's like all insect shit. When I stumbled upon totally accidentally too, I'm like, you know what? Investigation <laughs> games are really rough. Yeah. Because there's there's a, a fine line between giving your players enough where they feel like they're going in a direction and not giving them so much where they're just barreling through. Right. right. And then there's a lot of arguing amongst the players about what the clues actually mean. And so sometimes uh, an entire episode can be taken up with people just discussing what it is they found and why it's important. It's so yeah, investigation games can get rough, and the suspense goes away when people are busy trying to figure out what the what this means. But uh, simple fact uh, is is that I have felt I've never felt like I've been either tugged in one direction too hard where I, it it pulled me out of the immersion, and I've never felt that I've been wandering aimlessly in a void because I haven't had enough input to go in one direction right. so that I, as long as you pull that off in an investigation game I'm fairly satisfied excellent my belief that the advice of yes and is so frequently misinterpreted that it's not a useful tool within the hobby of role playing games therefore I'd like to swap it out with always consider it it conveys the same general premise but doesn't contain the same possibility for misinterpretation good luck changing terms in role playing in the role playing game hobby yeah misinterpretation is part of the fun and yes, I'm still, par- <laughs> I'm still partial to yes and because of it. Really, does it did come from the theater improv stuff? And what you're doing is you're accepting what they want and adding to and it. adding to it, yeah. as opposed to I will consider it, which still makes you think there's an ambivalence to it, right? right. Or that that you may not actually you, you may not actually accept it. You're just right. going to say and no. You don't always, but the, I mean, you don't always yes and. I mean, you there don't. are times it's like no, that really kind of goes against like the main core concepts of the setting, or, and that's a no yeah. but, right? But you still you still drive it forward. No, but right, you can do this instead. Um, all right, uh, four death to the false emperor. That's right, death to the false emperor. Five thousand sons, baby. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are referencing. Warhammer forty k. In a recent episode, you mentioned a rough divide between what you called planners and panzers. Did you guys do that? That's I love that. Planners panzers, and panzers, I think, was the term. I like panzers myself, because planners and panzers, guys that just go right through and yeah. blow things up. It's a blitzkrieg, right? man. It's a total blitzkrieg, yeah. and people that just say, no, 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 we've got to plan this. I so, bet it's the wrong end of that In fact, I'm making yeah. a whole game called Planners and Panzers. <laughs> I want to play that game. <laughs> it's about accountants in Nazi Germany. <laughs> There's the technicians and and accountants. <laughs> planners and panzers. Somebody, somebody make a t-shirt. Okay, uh, so planners and panzers, and I couldn't really think of an example of someone who's a planner. I think a good example of a planner is Chad of Fear of the Boot, or Angry GM, who I dearly wish could be on. Uh, could have the time to appear on the podcast again. The unifying theme between them is that they start with a general idea of what the end of the campaign is, and then work backwards from there. Obviously, these two examples are incredibly different in other aspects, but they both set out with a goal in mind when they first draft their games. Uh, this seems to make a much more concentrated game and requires some heavier guidelines for what sort of PCs are acceptable. Six. Now, let me just say, it's like for, for... Oh, he did it for that. Yeah. Uh, for the Call of Cthulhu game, I'm totally a planner. As witnessed by... I o- almost always have an answer for you guys yeah. when you start asking a question. No, your game prep in that game is amazing. <laughs> it's but, extensive. But I think you have to with a game like Call of Cthulhu. You have to have telegrams pre-made. You have to have that stuff. Oh, I can make blender. telegrams on the fly. Well, okay. I have a printer right there that's wirelessly okay. hooked up to the computer, and I have a PDF. I can just go... I'm getting faster at it. You also have annoying players that are researching that time period like crazy and constantly coming up with new crap for you to deal with. Right. But I think any investigation has a lot of, I think, planning prep to it because yes. you have to be able to you can sort of you have to lead them without them being fully led and you have to give them enough clues that they you know that they can start pieces to and if they it start does if they, and, it, and the, the whole thing is I want to make sure that like if they get to find a, a certain piece of information I try to anticipate what are the possible directions they could go yeah. and, and at least have some idea of what's going to be in those directions mm-hmm. now they're all they're, already have thrown in things where they've gone down avenues that I had not anticipated yeah but for the most part, the stuff that they've done is stuff I've planned for them to do. We're not in the order I planned it, but it all happened. When Dave and I did Mission Embartable, I planned out and, and set out a bunch of things and, and with clues. And I said, so if we drop this clue, what, are the, what, are, what do you think the players might do? And we had to run through some possible scenarios so that we could have uh, possible clues or at least a, uh, something that, that would come of it. Um, and, and, or anticipate, oh, that's a bad clue. Oops, that's going to take them off the, off the track. It can be... It takes some. It does take a different muscle than just sort of yes, ending your way through a through a dungeon. Right. Uh, I actually 
did a whole blog thing about this and, 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 and exactly the same sort of working backwards thing. But I only really do that when I'm doing a whodunit mm-hmm. type of situation where I go, this is the crime that was done. And then I go backwards from the crime being done and just go, this is how he did it. Yeah. And then what I do, and I borrowed this from Shadowrun, is that at every point where, where the villain or whoever perpetrated this does something active... I come up with six clues mm. that are left behind from that action, mm-hmm. and I randomly determine which route, which one they find. And the sixth one is always something that they're going to find no matter what. But it's usually the most ambiguous clue. Right. Uh, so what you do is when you go backwards and you do that, and you literally have they're going to find the situation where this happened. These are the things that are laying around for them to find. They could be different things. I don't always just go with one, and that sort of o- glosses over the a failed perception check here or whatever. But I always have the one obvious clue that's going to be there that may be a little bit harder to follow than the rest of them, but they're going to get it. I'm never going to f- have a situation where they flub all the perception rolls, do everything wrong, and never find the critical you, rule. You can't do that. That's, I, that. It's the, one of the major things I learned by doing this podcast was that. It's like, if you have an investigation, I don't know why it occurred to me so late in life. It's like, if you have an investigation game, give them the freaking clues. Right. That's the whole point behind an investigation game. If you're just going to withhold clues from them, nobody's going to have any fun. You can't solve the mystery. Right. You have Spot to give them the clues. Call of Cthulhu. So mm-hmm. important. <laughs> you know, and people are so rigid. Well, you got to roll for perception to figure out the clues. No, give it to them. Yeah. You're going to have much more there, fun. There, there's a certain <laughs> point where you have to give them something. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, well, what, what's the Pilgrim Press game? That, that you just give them. The, yeah. You just get yeah. the clues. The gumshoe. Gumshoe. And and then also there's the, the Alexandrian dot net had it had a, it, his rule for a scene is there's always three clues leading somewhere. Yeah. So if even if they failed a roll or two rolls, there's still one thing they'll find. And I hold on to that uh, the the rule of three, which is that there's these three clues and they will all lead somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it's. It was an epiphany to me. It's like, of course, of course, it's a, it's an investigation game. That that's the goal. It's not about um, them maybe solving the mystery. It's about them putting the clues together and going on that journey. Miss Marple the- never walked by a clue. Nope. Right. That we know of. <laughs> right. <laughs> that he knew of. Yeah. That'll be all for for this time. Have a good good one and oh, drink right, like finished. you mean it. Oh, there it is. P.S. Made you say Shaft. Ah. Watch your mouth. I'm just talking about the Shaft. shaft. <laughs> I can dig it. <laughs> All right. I hope we've been useful. I think you. we have. Uh, I'm going to close this bitch out. Let's see. What do we got? Uh, there it is. You haven't heard this one? I released a brand new uh, collection of songs several weeks ago called, uh, what did I call it, Crime, Betrayal, and Horror. Uh, and uh, you can get that on pretty much any, any place you can get digital music. I'll play one of the songs from that right now. Nah, I play that one all the time. I'll play the other one.
preceding program has been a presentation of the Angry Folk Media Empire. Bum, 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 bum.